I am Alon Ben-Mir and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Mary Beth Altier, Clinical Assistant Professor at NYU Center for Global Affairs and an expert on international security and political violence. You can find Mary Beth full bio on the page for this episode. I'm going to ask you a question and in terms of, you know, why, in spite of the fact that democracies are established, mm-hmm. uh, uh, political violence continues. Mm-hmm. Well, what's your take? Because I know you wrote a book, or you're in the process of mm-hmm. writing mm-hmm. the book, yeah, yeah. and this is your main subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what is your take on this? Well, I mean, you have democracies that are established. I mean, if you think about um, Afghanistan, for instance, which we were just discussing, um, in Afghanistan, you have um, parties that are excluded from the political settlement that results in the democratic elections. So I'm just thinking about groups like the Taliban, uh, for instance, aren't brought into the political process. Um, and so when you have groups like that, um, they're effectively spoilers, right, of, of the peace process and democracy. Um, so, you know, you might see uh, political violence continue in those places. Yeah, but, but in yeah. the case of the Taliban, yeah. I don't think they have excluded themselves, mm-hmm, or they've mm-hmm. been excluded. Mm-hmm, they excluded themselves, mm-hmm, rather. Mm-hmm. And that's the, yeah, yeah. the, the difference. That mm-hmm. is, they did not want to be, because they were part, they yeah, were yeah. the government mm-hmm, before, mm-hmm. Into, by the 2011. Yep. And they refused the United States uh, demands for that mm-hmm, matter, mm-hmm. to get rid of Al-Qaeda at the mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. And then the United States finally decided, well, we might as well do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Taliban excluded themselves throughout mm-hmm. this process. And to this day, mm-hmm. they continue not to recognize the central government. Mm-hmm. But unlike, say, what happened in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. what happened there? In, in Northern Ireland? Yeah. Or? Well, I mean, in Northern Ireland, you did have uh, groups like you know, Sinn Féin and the yeah. IRA uh, included in the peace process. Um, and also, they were able to bring their constituencies with them. Um, so it's not only that, you know, the IRA was included in the peace process, but they, you know, the group itself was able to bring um, all, or I'd say the bulk of members of the IRA, not all of them, um, and their constituencies with them. And, you know, they really believed in the peace process. When I think about a place like Afghanistan, I'm not sure that most individuals identify with the Afghan state um, and feel that they are necessarily benefiting from democracy. I mean, you see something similar in Iraq as well. So, you know, you have uh, democratic elections, right? Then you have al-Maliki, you know, engaging in, in purges of, of Sunnis and things like that. And so, you know, I think with democracy, people need to feel like it's working for them, you know, and a lot of times that takes a long time. You know, you need to go through several cycles. Um, and so you'll always have these these spoilers that, you know... Um, but then again, you know, when you look, <clears throat> the way I look... Excuse me, democracy. That mm-hmm. is, uh, in a society that have been living for centuries, sometimes mm-hmm. even more than that, without any semblance of democratic form of government. Mm-hmm. And then we go there and we try to, to, to introduce to them a new political concept. Here's a democracy and this is how it functions. Mm-hmm. And that's how it works. But in any of these cases, and that is why I think there's a big difference between Northern Ireland mm-hmm. versus, say, Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. In Iraq and Afghanistan, there was no tradition of democratic form of government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when we come and we introduce that concept to them, mm-hmm. well, it is alien concept to begin mm-hmm, with. That's mm-hmm. number one. Yep. Number two, there, there's a lack of 
democratic institution mm -hmm. to support yep. a political uh, democracy. Mm -hmm. That is another element. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, also the lack of free um, um, political parties mm -hmm. with their own agenda that can promote mm -hmm. and be able to compete in an, in an election. So mm -hmm. what we in the United States, I think, in the West in general, I think they have completely misguided idea in mm -hmm. terms of what is going to take to yeah. really mm -hmm. establish a democracy in countries mm -hmm. like Egypt, mm -hmm. or which has failed miserably in mm -hmm. Afghanistan, mm -hmm. to, say, to name only a few, uh, uh, mm -hmm. Yemen is another, uh, by going there without thinking in terms of a, the tradition, the culture of mm -hmm. these countries involved. I mean, even, even if they have many similarities, again, they still have many differences, and you cannot apply the same form, quote-unquote, of democracy mm -hmm. to all of them. But we seem to be confusing free and fair election mm -hmm. with a democratic form of government. And yeah. I'd like to I'd like to hear a take on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree completely. I mean, there are, there are a lot of democracies that, or, or countries that have free and fair elections that aren't necessarily democracies. Um, and so, you know, we were talking about political violence. Research shows that when, you know, you do have um, free and fair elections, but you have governments maybe that are engaging in human rights abuses or, or things like that, that that generates support um, for political violence among the population, and they can't really buy into a democracy that's, you know, engaging in those those sorts of practices, like I mentioned with Maliki and, and Iraq. Yeah, yeah. So. That's right. So, they, so when you talk about, you know, when they do not benefit mm -hmm. from a democratic form of government, mm -hmm. or of course they resort to other means, including mm -hmm. violence, mm -hmm. but what is going to take in order for them to be able to participate in a governing system, mm -hmm. a democratic form of government? even if the resources are lacking to provide mm -hmm. uh, better opportunities, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. job, education, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. healthcare, and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so here, the, the economic condition, mm -hmm. or said poverty in mm -hmm, most mm -hmm. cases, is a major factor. Mm -hmm. That is, you can have a democratic form of government mm -hmm. without undertaking simultaneously significant economic development program mm -hmm. to allow the, the, the despairing and the poor and the despondent mm -hmm. to have a hope at a minimum, if not mm -hmm. actual bread immediately. I think that's another element that has been missing. Mm -hmm. That is, we are looking at Egypt, we're looking at some of these countries, Afghanistan, they are very, very poor. Mm -hmm. So with the best of circumstances, you can mm -hmm. have the best democratic form of government, mm -hmm. but if the government cannot provide, mm -hmm. well, the public is going to get sick and tired. Mm -hmm. So what, for them, democracy doesn't mean a damn thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I do agree that you do need certain levels of economic development. Um, I think more fundamentally that people need to feel, I mean, I think that's one part of it, but I think more fundamentally people need to feel like the government is capable of providing for their security um, more so than their uh, economic opportunities. I, I, I do agree economic opportunities matter, but more fundamentally, security. Um, so in Afghanistan, for instance, when you do have the Taliban not included in a political settlement and running around killing people and things like that, people don't feel secure. I mean, same thing in Northern Ireland. You did have, you know, a certain threshold of political development. Uh, many Catholics were, you know, economically uh, aggrieved compared to, to Protestants, for instance, but, you know, you did have a certain level of economic development and you still had, um, you know, support pro for political violence and things like that. And, and you can show over time that that, that support actually increases, uh, you know, the more people actually feel that their, their security is not being provided for. So, 
you know, uh, there was a period in Northern Ireland from 1920 to 1960 where people were very poor, but they actually didn't support violence because they felt secure in the state. It wasn't the state that they wanted, right? But they, you know, there was a certain level of security. They felt like, you know, the British uh, government and the police were providing, you know, for their safety, a certain level of safety. And then when the civil rights movement happened, you had repression and you had indiscriminate violence by the state. That's when you start to see, right, um, people feeling insecure and this sort of generating support um, for political parties, so uh, political parties that are violent, so um, and terrorist groups. So I do think that um, economic factors matter, but I think more fundamentally security and just physical security. Yeah, but what do you think? You know, when we talk about poverty, I think I look mm -hmm. at it in terms of relative terms. Mm -hmm. You know. You can mm -hmm. be very poor in the United States if you're yep. earning, let's say, yep. ten, twelve thousand dollars yep. a year. You can be very poor in yep. Yemen. We're probably starving to death because yep. we have absolutely nothing to eat. Yep. But whereas security, I mean, I think your example is very relevant to the situation in Iraq. Mm -hmm. It wasn't there as much. The violence continued after the the mm -hmm. election mm -hmm. uh, between the Sunni and the Shiite. Mm -hmm. Um, not because of poverty, not because mm. they didn't have enough food to eat, mm. but because of lack of security on mm. the one hand, mm -hmm. and and uh, the opposition, that mm -hmm. is, the determination by the Sunnis, who've been ruling the country for 70, from 1922, mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden the, the power mm. that been usurped from them, mm -hmm. and whether, um, so regardless of poverty, regardless of even the sense of security, mm -hmm. they, there's a third element, mm -hmm. they were not prepared to accept the change in the status quo. Mm -hmm. They still feel that the power has been taken away from them. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you have in your research similar cases where uh, um, political violence continues? Mm -hmm. Regardless, you know, because what you suggest about security is very important, mm -hmm. is to say. But with or without it, that is when, when um, when a certain group feel that they've been deprived mm -hmm. of what they uh, of the power they've been enjoyed earlier, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's what happens, say, in the Sunnis uh, among the Sunnis in Iraq. Yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, I guess I, the the closest example I have is I was in, interviewing a loyalist paramilitary, and he said, you know, um, we won the war, but we lost the peace. And so his idea was, we won the war because we, um, you know, Northern Ireland's still part of of the UK. Right. But he basically felt like they lost the peace because they lost, you know, the political power that they enjoyed. Um, they were seeing, you know, Sinn Féin representatives associated with the IRA taking office. Um, they didn't feel like they were benefiting from the peace process economically, politically. Um, and so many of them do still engage in, in violence and, and criminality. And, you know, they don't really have um, you know, the buy in for the, for the peace process. And so you do see things like they won't work with the security forces, um, you have paramilitarism going on and, and things like that. Now, since the since the Good Friday Agreement, which mm -hmm. was like how many years now? Seven? Uh, Twenty. Eight? It was the 20th oh, anniversary. Oh, many, many. Is what am I thinking? <laughs> but actually, wasn't there some of the provision of the Good Friday Agreement is that yep. after seven years? Yeah. In, that? in 2006, there was the St. Andrews. That's right. Yeah, they yeah. were supposed to have a new election, is it? Uh, to 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 join, in fact, um, uh, Ireland. A referendum. A referendum. Yeah. That, that, but I, to, to my recollection, nothing really has changed. Northern Ireland still under British rule mm -hmm. to this day. Yep. So what has fundamentally? What's the good Friday? Good Friday? Mm -hmm. Good Friday? Mm -hmm. Agreement <laughs> yeah. has actually done. 
Yeah, so um, so they have a power sharing government, which is actually currently broken down and so yes, on. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, the, the I think the biggest thing that I have seen the Good Friday Agreement do, um, is policing reform. And so again, I mentioned security really matters in in bringing um groups into the process into believing in democracy. And so, um. There was uh, policing, significant policing reform. It took a while, and the peace process broke down a few times, but there was significant policing reforms. Um, and uh, Sinn Féin and the IRA actually, at least verbally, uh, committed to, to policing and to supporting the police and to encouraging people to report things to the police rather than to them and things like that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a, a huge, huge um, step. And also decommissioning was part of... Of, of the process. So. Yeah, but but if you might think then these negotiations mm. took so long mm -hmm. that from the very beginning they said, well, all we are interested in security, mm -hmm. uh, the, there would not have been a war going on a conflict for 30 mm -hmm. years, you know. Mm -hmm. So there was the, the, their goal was entirely different from mm -hmm. merely achieving some kind of a security for everyone. Mm -hmm. They wanted to get out of under the British government mm -hmm. altogether. Yep, yep. But that did not happen. Mm -hmm. In spite of the Good Friday Agreement, no. <laughs> and today they seem to be living with it. Yeah, they're living with it. I well, mean, well, um, but I want to hear your views yeah. on why are they living with it? <laughs> <laughs> why are they living with it? Well, again, because I do think that you know, uh, well, there are a couple of reasons. So, one is, um, you know, when there were discussions about whether the IRA and Sinn Fein should should enter politics and, and, you know, give up the armed struggle, so to speak. Um, there were discussions of the fact that the Catholic birth rate was outpacing the Protestant birth rate, and so eventually we could electorally achieve this, right, right. through a referendum. Um, that hasn't happened yet. Um, I guess the Catholic birth rate slowed down, I don't know. Um, but then, you know, I think um, at least um, the Catholics in Northern Ireland and, and the IRA and Sinn Féin are benefiting more from the peace process. So you know, people actually got tired of the conflict. You know, it, it became a little war weary. Um, and you know, there. You know, when you interview people, it's you know not wanting to see future generations grow up. You know, w with the way we did. Um, and so a lot of former paramilitary paramilitaries in Northern Ireland now are um, involved with, um, you know, preventing youth from. You know, because there are still fringe paramilitary organizations that don't support the yeah. peace process, and so. Some of the ones that have decommissioned and accepted the peace process are really involved now with, um, you know, uh, preventing youth, you know, discouraging them from from joining these fringe groups. Um, they do get a, a very nice peace dividend. So I was visiting one loyalist paramilitary, and the British government, you know, rebuilt his office. He has a really nice office, and just like you here. So um, you know, funded by the British government. Um, so it seems like in some ways they're almost sort of paying them to to behave, so to speak. You know, um, yeah. but. So, so in this particular case, you know, you mentioned perhaps they got too tired mm -hmm. from continuing. That is, when one mm -hmm. element of conflict resolution is being mm -hmm. exhausted. That is, <laughs> we're no longer worthwhile fighting yeah. because there will be no further gains. Yep. So in this particular case in Northern Ireland, they have made some gains, obviously. Mm -hmm. That is, they have the security, they have the means, uh, mm -hmm. all, and they are better police, better organized. Mm -hmm. They're participating in the, uh, in the governing system. Mm -hmm. And so if you take that example, mm -hmm. can we duplicate that to some other conflict in different other places? Say in, in current uh, mm -hmm. uh, countries like, like, like Egypt, like Afghanistan, like Iraq, mm -hmm. like Yemen. There's, a, however, one difference, of course, we, we always need to keep in mind, 
that is Western orientation mm -hmm. versus Eastern orientation, Middle Eastern yeah. orientation. To what extent, from your perspective, that makes a big difference in the in the in the political orientation mm -hmm. of on both sides? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some lessons. I mean, one of the things that really helped bring the IRA into the political process was that they did re come to this conclusion that they were going to reach a stalemate, right? So we're not going to win this war, so to speak. And, um, you know, and the British really aren't going to necessarily ever win the war. And, um, you know, the British actually, I'd say like around the 1980s, realized that their counterterrorism strategy wasn't working. It was generating more support for the IRA. So they became more discriminant. Um, in, in their their tactics, you know, killing fewer civilians, um, reducing levels of insecurity, and so uh, Sinn Fein and the IRA realized that they couldn't actually expand their electoral base any further. Right, it sort of had reached its its pinnacle, and so mm -hmm. there really was nowhere to go without moderating. Um, so I mean, they could have either continued on the armed struggle, which would have resulted in a stalemate, right? Um, and there were there's there's also discussion that they were heavily infiltrated by the, the British security forces. Or, right, they could try and moderate a little bit and expand their, their political support base, um, which is what they did. I mean, they, they eventually, they, they moderated. You know, the British, British kind of forced their hand because if they had continued with the indiscriminate violence, right, killing civilians, you know, in, in the counterterrorism or counterinsurgency campaign, that would have allowed the IRA to expand their support base. And I think that's what we see in Iraq and um, Afghanistan is that this sectarian violence, any violence against civilians is basically what I find in my research, allows these violent groups to thrive and expand their support base. And so, you know, if, if we continue to see, you know, sectarian violence, either because of actions of the government, for instance, in Iraq, or, or ISIS, you know, sort of um, fomenting such violence, or, you know, the state uh, uh, colludes in such violence or is incapable of preventing violence against civilians, um, then it really, you know, sort of generates support for for these other violent parties beneath the surface of the state. Whereas when the state can actually, you know, um, curtail civilian casualties, it has the capacity to do that and the willingness. So I always talk about two things in my research: the state yes, has to have the course, yes. has to have the capacity to do it, but then also many states aren't willing to do it, right? If they're, you know, ethnic divisions or other things. Um, so I think that that's that's one thing, uh, one lesson, and then the other is. Um, you know, I, I do think that economic development matters, uh, and matters more, like you said, there are sort of diminishing returns, matters more in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, because um, when there isn't, or when there isn't a certain level of development, you know, these groups can step in and uh, help people access services, provide services, um, which then generates, you know, support for for those violent groups and undermines democracy and, and state capacity. So right. in Northern Ireland, I mean, the, the state was very conscious about the fact that it had to keep providing services. So they would, you know, um, when a railway station was bombed, they would provide busing, you know, they would constantly, you know, engage in, in service provision. Um, the security situation often precluded people from accessing services, which was a huge issue, another reason why security mattered. Um, but you didn't see, you know, the sorts of things we see going on with Hezbollah, where, you know, they have hospitals and they're providing electricity and water. I mean, Sinn Féin and the IRA never did that. The British government No, of course, those. yeah. They, yeah. They, 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 they do not create yeah. a governing apparatus yeah. to be able to provide these kind of services. Yeah, but they did They did provide, I mean, they did provide policing and, and criminal well, yeah, justice. And security. They were focused yeah. more on security. I agree with you. Now, to what extent do you feel that at the time, Clinton and Blair discern mm -hmm. 
that is, that uh, that is of course it took leadership. I mean, oh yeah, for it sure. It took leadership on yeah. the part of three Irish. Uh, mm-hmm. Was it prime minister at the time mm-hmm. or uh, Blair and Clinton? And George Mitchell. Uh, Mitchell, yeah. Mitchell, <laughs> was in, in, the in between. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But in in that in that. Um, did they find out uh, that that uh, the IRA and the uh, are getting already exhausted, tired, mm-hmm. and jump onto the opportunity to mm-hmm. try to mediate, or do you feel what's the role of leadership in this regard? That is, uh, uh, from my perspective, leadership matters a great deal. Yeah. And and do you where do you see that? In to what extent leadership played into the the conflict itself, where both sides feel. We are not going to get anywhere. We're mm-hmm. not going to win. This is mm-hmm. the, there is no winning here. Mm-hmm. We are only basically losing if we mm-hmm. continue this uh, the, the conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think le- I agree with you. I think leadership matters immensely um, in in both stoking violence and fomenting violence, and then also you know in in bringing people to to some sort of resolution. So um, there were a series of dialogues uh, between uh, the British government and leadership of the IRA. Um, and as I mentioned in the early 1980s, the IRA leadership did, uh, you know, have this you know, new strategy of, of the Armalite in the battle box, or ballot, sorry, battle, ballot box. Um, so, you know, pursuing politics along, alongside the armed struggle. And so there were a series of dialogues um, between uh, the leader of the moderate Catholic Party, the SDLP, John Hume, um, and Jerry Adams, as well as uh, the British government and, um, and the IRA leadership. And so, you know, you know, I think those were crucial. And then the ability of Adams and McGuinness to to bring the IRA with them. You know, so they were very careful um, in how they sold it to the IRA. And, you know, uh, again, the IRA is a very centralized organization. So you actually could think with uh, more decentralized groups that, that yeah. we see today that it would actually be more difficult. You know, like I'm thinking of Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Those groups are much more decentralized. Um, so I think it, it, peace processes might be more difficult, you know, in, in terms of bringing the whole group with you. Um, but they were able to bring the, the bulk of the IRA into uh, the peace process, and and they were they were quite you know savvy about it. So they had this policy um, that was put forth in the early 1980s called TUAS, and um, there's debate about what it stood for. So um, some people said it stood for totally unarmed struggle, um, and then uh, other people said. Uh, the, the way they sold it to the IRA was, and, and some people say that was the, the, the policy, but when they presented it to, you know, the the, uh, the meeting uh, of the IRA, they, they used uh, tactical use of armed struggle, right? So, <laughs> right? so very, very careful in, in how they frame things, right, to, to their different constituencies, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is very interesting, yes. And, uh, I'm, I've been thinking in terms of, uh, we take the Northern Ireland mm-hmm. example, which you might say, and it's successfully, Mm, to, to, yeah. a great, to a great extent. Yeah, I mean, I mean in terms of violence. In terms but, of yeah. violence, it's substantially yeah. different than it was. But of course, we don't see the same thing in other places. Mm-hmm. Now, to what extent uh, countries in the East mm-hmm. can learn from that experience? Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, um, I'd like to hear your, your take on it, and, mm-hmm. and, and I'd like to, come to, mm-hmm. to suggest what I'm thinking on the subject. Mm-hmm. But what's your, what's your take on this? What can they poss- practically learn but given, however, the differences, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. huge differences in mm-hmm, culture, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, his, history, mm-hmm, uh, religion, all mm-hmm, of this matter, mm-hmm. in, 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 the, in, the, in the search for this kind of solution. Yeah, I mean, I think any solution needs to take into account the, the local political context, you know, cu- culture. Um, you know, I, I think 
you know, there are questions about, like, in Afghanistan, people don't associate with the state, they associate with their tribe. I mean, so I, I do think that those certain cultural practices and, and identity is huge, you know, identity is a huge issue, right? Who do people identify with? You know, the Kurds in Iraq, for instance, um, you know, whether they're going to buy into, into a, a peace process there. Um, so I, I do think that's a huge issue. But, I mean, there are definitely lessons learned, and there are similarities in these conflicts across cases. So... Some of the things I find in my own research looking quantitatively at how um, different types of violence, so different types of casualties affect support for, for armed groups, um, there are very similar findings by Jake Shapiro, who I'm actually uh, doing a book talk with tonight, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So some of the things we both find uh, are that uh, you know, violence, indiscriminate violence against civilians increases support for armed groups. Um, we both find that uh, inf uh, the severing of information between communities and uh, the state uh, also uh, increases uh, support for armed groups, breaking down of law and order, criminal justice. Um, the capacity of violent groups to provide law and order uh, and services also quantitatively we can show uh, increases support for armed groups. So at the micro level, there are certain dynamics of, of these conflicts that, that certainly travel. Um, you know, I, again, I think that, you know, you know, taking into account the, the economic, political, cultural differences help us understand how um, policies might need to vary, right? Do we need a certain level of development? Um, how do we sequence, I mean, these are huge questions, how do we sequence aid, right, security and development, right? How do we, how do we sort of bridge that, that nexus? People talk about the security development nex nexus, right? Do you need de development before security, right? Or security before development, right? Or how do you inject that all at once? So, um, so, you know, think, of course, you know, when you take the Northern Ireland case, you have two entities, basically, mm -hmm. uh, combating one another. Mm -hmm. But then you go to different places, like Iraq, like uh, you mm -hmm. have more than two mm -hmm. elements. And so when you have more than two elements who, who have their own objective, their own mm -hmm. goal, their own aspirations, and you come up with a democratic form of government knowing in advance mm -hmm. that if, if one man, one vote, mm -hmm. they will not be in power mm -hmm. because they, are, they do not constitute the majority. Mm -hmm. so, so what we see, for example, say, say Iraq, you know, you have three segments. You have the yeah. largest Shiite community versus the Sunni, which is in the middle, and then you have the Kurds. And to this day, they continue to struggle mm -hmm. into, in fact, to have an effective democratic government that is functioning. Mm -hmm. The Kurds decided to go on their own. Of course, mm -hmm. that, that didn't work so far. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the way we see democracy, I think, in the West, uh, it's it's um, it's not it's it's a we 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 have a, we have no clear concept of how to take this example of democracy and try to implant it mm -hmm. in the different areas. Mm -hmm. In Northern Ireland, it's very easy, much easier, much easier. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's mean, easy. Very easy but <laughs> much, it was much easier because again. The cultural uh, mm -hmm. differences were not as a stark. Yeah, yeah. And the language uh, was not a barrier. Mm -hmm. Whereas in different places, there is a cultural difference, mm -hmm. different languages, different religious orientation, mm -hmm. all of that we mentioned before. So to what extent you see you can take countries like Egypt like, and try to fashion mm -hmm. some kind of a democratic form of government that can endure mm -hmm. given mm -hmm. the differences within the population itself. Mm -hmm. um, so, so to me, to me, you know, uh, our efforts to introduce this kind of system mm -hmm. is going to continue to fail mm -hmm. 
unless we get a better understanding as to what is in fact going to take. I've been talking all along that in countries like this, you're going to need significant period of, of uh, reconciliation process, transformation. That is, you cannot come in and impose democratic form of government unless you go through some period of time, five, seven, maybe even more years, to prepare, the, to create the political, the different kind of political orientation that could lead to democratic form of government. And to that end, you probably need to create some kind of a representative entity uh, that represents all segments of the population. Syria, I think, will be, will be falling into that category at one point mm -hmm. or another, if Syria is to remain a single entity. Mm -hmm. uh, so to, from, from what your research on, on, on this subject, don't you see that it is going to be absolutely necessary to go in that direction, mm -hmm. rather than going there and say, well, yes, you have a medicine, he's a, he's a democracy, mm -hmm. this is how it works. But then what also happened is that something is important to keep in mind, Many countries take today Poland, take Hungary, Turkey mm -hmm. is in lead in this regard. Mm -hmm. It's a democratic, there was a fair and free election, you have mm -hmm. a president, mm -hmm. but he's now become a, a dictator for all intents mm -hmm. and purposes. Yep. So, but we are still in the West wedded mm -hmm. <laughs> to Turkey in so many different yes, ways. many ways. Uh, so how, how do we go, how do you, from your perspective, how do you go about this mm -hmm. to effect a change that is going to last mm -hmm. and that move countries more yeah, to, yeah. toward democracy. When we see now the trend is actually is reversing, yeah. that is going back to tribalism, we're mm -hmm. going back. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and so we are, have we really made any significant progress? Mm -hmm. I, what, what, what's your... Uh, well, that's, that's a huge question, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> so I, I don't think, I mean, the world hasn't solved it, so I don't think I'm going to solve it. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with you in terms of Iraq. You do have different, you know, groups and that they all need some form of representation. Um, you know, in Northern Ireland, you have uh, allotted, you know, like a first minister, deputy minister, and so people do have um, vetoes over each other and things like that. So, um, I mean, I could imagine a system in Iraq like that with three groups. I guess the, the issue, um, we actually do a simulation where we build a government for Iraq in, in one of my classes, um, and we all we all fail <laughs> miserably. Um, but I mean, I guess I, I'm thinking like even like a system like Lebanon, you know, it's you can create a system like that, but it's always, and we see this in Northern Ireland where you have, you know, minority vetoes and things like that, but it's always significantly blocked. Like it's just the system itself, you know, it, it, people, maybe initially people, it makes people believe in the process, but then the second policy is not going the way someone wants, the system itself becomes blocked. And we see that in Lebanon now, the power sharing government in Northern Ireland is broken down. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. And, you know, one of the things we also discuss in my class is, you know, whether these borders are, should remain the borders that they are, right? So they're artificial borders. And so, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, and, you know, is it our, our role to inject democracy there, right? I mean, we could maybe help facilitate groups that are promoting democracy, um, you know, and promote, like you said, peace building initiatives, conflict resolution. But I agree completely, just, you know, running an election is, is, is not going to, uh, to succeed. And then, you know, another thing I've also brought up, um, you know, uh, in other podcasts, for instance, is that the you know, state building is an inherently violent process, you know, and so sometimes I think when uh, international actors intervene militarily, not, you know, not di diplomatically like you do, I'm all for diplomacy, mm -hmm. <laughs> but when they intervene militarily, that that actually uh, prolongs conflict. And I think that lately, there was actually a great um, 
documentary. I don't know if you saw Richard Holbrook. I think lately the uh, the reaction is to intervene militarily, you know, stabilize the place, run a couple of elections, and and head out. And there's no focus on diplomacy, negotiations, political settlement. I mean, your State Department's empty. You know, so I I do think that we need to think a little bit more about you know, a political reconciliation, as you said, said, or creating a lasting political settlement where there's significant buy-in and not just, you know, having a military solution to stabilize the place and then heading out and running elections and, you know, sayonara sort of. Yeah, but yeah. And, and sometimes, of course, I think sometime, I'm not sure I can justify that, but it, however it's taken a place, there's initial serious violence to mm -hmm. begin with. Mm -hmm. And uh, then comes along a leader who says, well, we have reached a point of saturation and this is time to, to stop. I said military intervention. Mm. Um, Turkey was a good example of having a military that was custodian mm -hmm. to maintain a democratic form of government. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in this particular case in, in Turkey, the military has a very positive function. Mm -hmm. Allow Turkey to maintain at least good semblance of, of democratic mm -hmm. government. Well, when Erdogan came and usurped that power because under the pretext that the military mm -hmm. has to be subordinated to the civilian authority, mm -hmm. well then, instead of having military coup, well, he has civilian coup, mm -hmm. and he assumed all the power he wanted because mm -hmm. now the military could not intervene. Mm -hmm. So at one point, in this whole process we're talking about, and all of that, obviously violence, is violence always bad? Mm -hmm. or yeah. There is <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Or there's an element in violence mm -hmm. that actually could lead to a solution, albeit mm -hmm. I do not advocate violence mm -hmm. basically under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me from some of the examples we've seen, we've been looking into, and I've been looking into all of these mm -hmm. areas, specifically in the, in the Middle East, that, um, that violence is uh, often is used as a mean by which, of course, the violent individual or group is fighting, they have their own objective, mm -hmm. uh, but some of them make violence as an objective in and of itself. Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. But violence is used sometimes mm -hmm. in order to reach a certain political objective, mm -hmm. and that's, that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. do, you see, do you see that um, uh, a necessary sometime element in places like we've been discussing? Uh, well, in in in, um, in Northern Ireland, going back to Northern Ireland, it took thirty years of, of violence mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to get to the point where they were able to get to. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, like I, we discussed earlier, I mean, violence can be a reaction to oppression, right? So, I mean, there are certain circumstances. You know, I always like to separate. You know, I study terrorism, so I always like to separate terrorism. I tell my students it's a tactic, right? It's not. There's nothing normative about it. It can be bad. It can be good. But it's a, it's a tactic that people use. So I sort of steer away from the whole terrorist freedom fighter, right? We just call terrorism a tactic, and then your aims are something different, right? And so you can, you know, you can engage in violence against oppressive regimes. Um, you know, even our own history here in the U.S., there was a lot of violence to get to the place where we are, you know, and, and bring different political groups into the fold um, and have expansion of civil rights. So, so, yeah, I mean, I think in certain cases it can, you know, can lead to progress, you know? I mean, not that I'd advocate for violence. There's obviously a... You know, a more peaceful way of going about it. So what preferred. hope is there? Yeah. <laughs> so what hope is there for countries like Egypt, for countries that we've been mentioned that at this at one point everybody ever has a hope for them to move into them, mm -hmm. some form of democracy mm -hmm. and be able to sustain it for any mm -hmm. length of time. That is given everything we talked about, mm -hmm. it seems to me that this is gonna be basic, it's basically impossible mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. 
uh, they can maintain a certain level of security, mm-hmm. but that in and of itself is not mo- leading mm-hmm. to any further progress in terms of moving toward democratic form of government. Mm-hmm. There's the economic issue, which is, mm-hmm. which is um, massive as far as country like Egypt is concerned. So, based on what what we discussed, you know, if we if I were to sit down and, and advise CC, okay, you have to do A, B, C, mm-hmm, and D. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is going to be the formula? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is there such a formula? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is what I'm focusing yeah. on is a conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. What is the formula to end conflicts like this? Mm-hmm. To end dictatorships? Mm-hmm. Is it is it in the open? Can can you envision mm-hmm. uh, such solutions? Or where we are? Basically, we're reverting back into what I already mentioned, tribalism, mm-hmm. and moving more and more toward, toward the center, the right of center, mm-hmm. rather than move to more, lib- more liberal uh, mm-hmm. governing authorities. Um, I mean, we are actually witnessing the precisely the opposite mm-hmm. uh, movement uh, than what we were been hoping for mm-hmm. in the wake of World War II mm-hmm. and the creation of so many yeah, different yeah. countries and all of that, mm-hmm. the EU and what came after this. Mm-hmm we seem to be either at a standstill or mm-hmm. beginning to revert back. Yeah, I mean, we definitely are seeing a, a backlash to, to yeah, globalization, this is, this is per se. Backlash, yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's the backlash to globalization. I think people who haven't benefited from it. Um, and so we are seeing, um, you know, a, a rise in authoritarianism, as you said, yes. and those sorts of tendencies. So I, I don't know. I don't have the solution. I think, you know, I think... You know, people are always talking about with terrorism. I always like counter narratives. Like we need a counter narrative, and I always say, like, as a democracy, just be sort of like that beacon, right? Just be the best democracy you can be, and eventually, you know, people will see that that's sort of the best best form of government, um, you know, and come around. So, you know, and same thing with the UN. Like, be the best UN you can be. You know, help refugees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, I think. You know, I guess just by living what you practice, you know, we, we do see, you know, democracies engaging, as I mentioned earlier, in sort of egregious things. You know, if you look at torture and, and those sorts of things, or colluding with authoritarian regimes, I mean... You know, yeah, but, but I mean, I, I agree with you. Yeah. That you have to create an economic, social environment yeah. and maybe supportive and all mm-hmm. of that. Uh, but you also have to take the first step. I, I do think, however, that the counter-narrative is necessary, mm-hmm. even in a democratic government, because... <clears throat> the who, those who believe otherwise, Mm-mm. before they can apply themselves and, and, and to and relate, uh, they need also to change their, their views on what is stake, and they need to hear that counter narrative to what they actually been believing in. Mm-mm. So, so we are in the midst of changing, uh, <laughs> massive changing the dynamics of yeah, yeah. governing and uh, societal development, and I am, you know, I'm not. I'm never being pessimistic, but I don't mm-hmm. see, you know, in the short term anyway, mm-hmm. any significant progress that can put an end, put some mm-hmm. kind of an end to some of the most horrible violence coming that's taken place. No, I'm not optimistic either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we are seeing the like, proliferation of, of yeah. failing or fragile yeah. states, yeah. Uh, you know, authoritarian reversals. Um, you know, so a lot of proxy wars that's going right, on. We're seeing a rise right. in proxy wars. So, no, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not optimistic either. But, but you know, and with counter narratives, I I think again, what I was just trying to say is that, you know, um, like a lot of the people that I've interviewed who've been involved in political violence, you can talk to them all you want. You know, you can tell them things, you can give a message, but for them to really change their mind, they need to either become disillusioned with something about their involvement in violence, or they need to see that the way you know, like see. 
visibly see that the way that you're going about things is actually working out mm-hmm. better. You know, just talking to them just doesn't doesn't resonate. It seems to me that mm-hmm. uh, you and I are, we have our cut out for us. Well, hopefully you. you and I aren't the only ones working on these issues, right? <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank really you, too. Yeah, no problem. It's very nice yeah, speaking yeah. with you. You as well. Thank you again. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.